Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. One of the most famous sermons in the English Christian Church is Jonathan Edwards' sermon many people are familiar with, Sinners in the Hand of an Angry God. It was a sermon that came at a time where Maybe a sermon like that was needed. A time where a pastor like Jonathan Edwards was preaching to an audience that really was paying no attention to God. Really had no care for what God thought was living their lives however they wanted. And so he gave that sermon as a wake-up call, a call to repentance. And he quoted a verse from the Old Testament where God is basically dealing with Israel the same way in warning them about his wrath. Now, as we take that into consideration and think about the God that we're worshiping today, is that how we should be coming to the Lord in worship today? I could probably tell you that if you're in a place where you need that sermon, you're much worse off than I realize as a pastor. And maybe there's a time when you are in that place where you need that sermon that scares you, a sermon that awakens you, a storm that will shake you to your core to the point where there's no way out other than tossing you into the sea. Maybe that can happen. And maybe there'll come a time when I'll, I'll see that need and relate to you that sermon. But in my experience, the Christians that I'm preaching to more often do not need that sermon. How does God really want us to think of him? In the story of Jonah, you have a time where Jonah is fleeing the presence of the Lord, trying to get away. He's out into the sea on this boat full of these sailors, and God sends a storm. Now, to those sailors, this story would sound like any other story they knew about any other of their gods. In fact, they cry out to all of their gods. They're pleading with the God of War. They're pleading with the God of the land. They're pleading with the God of weather. They're pleading with the God of the sea. They're calling out to gods like Zeus and saying, what have we done to incur your anger? Please don't destroy us. And maybe there is a part to the story that is true in incurring God's anger because of disobedience, but... A half-truth about God leads to really no truth at all. Because unless you read the whole story, in fact, you, you can't just stop after chapter 1 when God hurls the storm at the boat and Jonah has to be tossed into the sea. You can't just stop there. And you can't just stop with the story of Jonah because Jonah is placed in the context of Israel and the story of the whole Old Testament. And the Old Testament is placed into the context of a greater story, of the coming one, 
the one who will be the Savior and Redeemer, the one that Hebrews says had to become like us in every way, take on flesh so that he can make an offering to God. So I have a trivia question for you. When is the first time in the Bible where God gets angry? Think about it. When when is the first time where the Bible says God got angry? Okay, so we got Adam and Eve. We got the golden calf. There's a pretty big gap between those two. If you're like me, you thought, oh, well, that's an easy one. It's, it's probably the Garden of Eden, and maybe if it doesn't mention he's angry there, it certainly would be the flood that happens in Genesis chapter 6. Surely God was angry there. And so you go to the story of the flood, where God cleanses the whole earth of its unbelief. And you read, and you say, well, how was God feeling? What was he thinking? And it says, not that he was angry, It says he was grieved in his heart. It said he was brokenhearted. In fact, the first time where it says God is angry doesn't happen at all in the whole book of Genesis. The word anger connected with God is not mentioned at all in the book of Genesis. It doesn't happen until God's dealing with his own people. And it doesn't happen until Moses. The first time is he gets angry because Moses refuses to be the spokesman that God has called him to be. In fact, he doesn't get angry right away either. He just, Moses says, why me, Lord? And then he says again, I'm not a good speaker. And then he says again, just pick somebody else. In fact, four times Moses refuses the Lord's call to be his spokesman before Pharaoh. And then it says the Lord's anger was kindled. His anger was hot, literally that his nose flared. And Mo- but rather than acting against Moses and any kind of judgment, he says, okay, well, I'll send Aaron. So he gets angry for a moment, and then he just decides on a different course of action. There's no rebuke or punishment against Moses. And then the next time is Pharaoh. And Pharaoh, who God had dealt with in sending Moses, in performing miracle after miracle after miracle, and yet every time Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart again and again over ten times. It says Pharaoh hardened his heart until finally at the Red Sea, Moses says that it was the blast of God's anger that split the sea and then drowned the Egyptians. After all of that, process of hardening his heart and then the third time is in exodus with the golden calf where the people have just been given the covenant they've just been redeemed and sanctified and called out of egypt with all of those mighty works and god says there's one commandment i want you to remember more than anything else don't make any idols And then what's the next thing that they do? Well, Moses is up on the mountain. They think he's probably died. He's never coming back. And they craft their own idol, a calf, in the representation of the Canaanite gods. And they call it the Lord. 
And then it says God was angry. In every one of these cases, it's never that God's immediate reaction to a situation is to get angry. See, we get confused about anger because we think about it in human terms. We think about it as humans think about it. But there are times when anger is appropriate. Our problem really is not with anger because how many t- would we want anybody in, in this church to, to just have no emotion at all? And let's say we found out that a child was hurt by an adult. Would we want adults in our church that just didn't care? Or when you hear that a child gets abused, do you get angry? Anger is connected to love in these cases and justice. It's why it says that God is a jealous God. He's jealous because of his love. He's jealous because he doesn't want anything to come and hurt you that would rob you of what he is trying to give you. Our problem is not the what of anger, it's the why. It's not anger all by itself, but why? Why are we angry? Because for most of us humans, we've corrupted the image of God so that our anger becomes the opposite of love. Our anger is often out of things we're afraid of, loss of control, we're not getting what we wanted, It's selfish. We're quick to anger. Our response is disproportionate to the actual thing that happened, and our anger is self-serving. We become abusers. We become revengeful. We seek selfish goals. But in the examples of God's wrath, it's never this way. So in the story of Jonah... What's the big idea? The big idea, as you read on in Jonah, is not that God's angry. In fact, by the time you get to chapter 4, it's the opposite. The opposite is true. You get to chapter 4, and it says, When God saw that the Ninevites repented, spoiler alert, how they turned from their evil ways, God relented of his disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But this displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my own land? This is why I ran away to Tarshish, for I knew you are a gracious God and merciful slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. And the Lord said, should you really be angry, Jonah? The story of Jonah is about Jonah's anger and how he's corrupted the image of God and how God is going to set things right. The topic we're dealing with today that I've been building up to and It's a very deep topic that we probably should take another six weeks on, is atonement. 
how does God deal with sin? How does his wrath connect to his to our sins? And what does he do about it? So the word atonement, uh, it is an Old Testament word, but you find it also outside of the Old Testament. In ancient Eastern religions and Greek religions, atonement would mean the gods are angry and we need to make them happy. So to these pagan sailors who worship all sorts of other gods, they would think of atonement as we've done something to make Zeus mad and now we must do something to make him happy. And so they viewed their sacrifices, their offerings in the temple as ways to make the gods happy. They thought because there was an idol in the temple that they were feeding the god, they were giving him wine to drink, they were giving him honor by being there, and they were serving him by giving him a house to live in. So in every ways, their idea of atonement was in terms of satisfying the anger of those gods, making them happy. How can I get their favor? And I'm convinced that the Old Testament and the New Testament are meant to show us that our God is not like that. One of the words that gives us some trouble when we come into the New Testament is this word propitiation, because it can be misunderstood. And you come to these passages that we looked at from Romans, where it says that Jesus was the propitiation, or 1 John, where it says Jesus was the propitiation. It's just a word just like atonement. It's a word that you probably would have to look up in a dictionary to understand. But it's the idea of satisfying someone's ill will so you have their favor again. <laughs> to the sailors, this would make sense, but to God, it doesn't work like that. Because the word atonement comes from the Hebrew kapur. Some of you probably see on your calendars, you're flipping through the months, there's a date on there called Yom Kippur. Anybody ever seen that on your calendar and wondered, what is that? That's a Jewish festival. And it's a Hebrew word that translates to Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. The Day of Atonement was a day in Leviticus that was prescribed once a year where the high priest was to make atonement for the sins of all the people. He was to come into God's place of worship and offer a sacrifice so that there would be atonement. And it uses that word again and again, kapoor, kapoor, kapoor. It was actually used before that day when they built the tabernacle. So when they built the building that they would worship in, God said, in this tent where you're going to come to worship me, there is going to be a kapoor. It was the name for behind the curtain where you go in to the special place, which is God's private residence, the place where he sits and has and sleeps and has his home, the most holy place. And in there, there was a box called an ark where the covenant that Moses and God made was placed into the ark. And on top of that ark was a lid that was called the kapoor. That lid 
was the place where Moses was supposed to meet with God, where he was supposed to talk with God, and God would appear above that cover, and the cover was his throne. It was overshadowed by two great creatures, which were heavenly beings called cherubim, and in between was his throne. So the throne was the kapur, and kapur was meant to teach the people that that was the place where God was going to cover their sins. That was the place where God was going to speak to their specific situation, the sins that they're carrying, the sins that they're guilty for, and where atonement would be made. So once a year, the high priest would come with blood, and he would sprinkle that blood on the kapur, and God said, your sins have been atoned for. Why do I bring all of this up? There's a few reasons why that picture of atonement is very different than Zeus's teaching on atonement. One of the main differences those sailors would have noticed was that in their temple, there was no idol. And so when you went to meet with God, there was, there was no one to see, there was no one to feed, there was no one to house. Where's your God? The Romans thought the Jewish people were all atheists. They had no idol. Another thing is that the food that was brought into that place was eaten by the priests, not by God. And the blood that was brought was not meant to be used for their own ends. It was meant to atone for sin. In all of this, atonement is teaching us there's a problem. Before we can ever get to God's atonement for sin, there's a reason why it's needed. And that's where the wrath of God comes. We can't understand the wrath of God apart from the holiness of God and the love of God. Atonement is meant to bring us into God's presence with confidence. To have our minds be set at ease, to be at peace, and know that God is on our side. In the story of Jonah, there's a problem that makes Jonah and the sailors think God is not on his side. He's headed in the wrong direction. But it's not only that Jonah's headed in the wrong direction, it's not only that he is fleeing from God but it's that he's disturbing God's plans to save the Ninevites. That means something. Sin is more than just breaking rules. And sin is more than just trying to tick off somebody who told you to do something. Sin is disturbing God's plans for the universe. Sin is unraveling the order and the directions that God has given for this world we live in. And so sinning means more than just, oh, I broke a rule or I stepped over the line. It is that something in us and in the world around us has become twisted from what God intended it to be. And with that twisting of reality comes a whole new reality a cursed world 
that Adam and Eve are living in. So when we look at God's wrath, you have to remember that it's tied to this twisting of sin. God's wrath is a realization that the world has become twisted and we're experiencing it. Because to take a twisted world into God's presence would be to pretend that God's okay with it. Does anybody want a God that's okay with evil? Does anyone want a God that's okay with sickness? Does anyone want a God that's okay with pain and suffering inflicted on mankind? And so sin twists and brings about this world that is filled with evil. And people that commit great evils. And his wrath is a realization, a working out of that wrongness. So that when we experience things are going wrong, we know that we live in a world that God is not satisfied with. That he must redeem. And it's out of his love that he acts. It's out of his love that he brings that ship to a halt. Because there's a whole city of Ninevites that are unraveling themselves with acts of evil that we wouldn't even want to speak of here in church. And Jonah is supposed to go and bring the message of the Lord to them. And by going the opposite direction, he is allowing the forces of evil and darkness to grow greater and more evil. And so God hurls a lasso, not a lightning bolt, and he grabs that ship in the storm, And he tries to prove to these men that he's in control. And unless Jonah turns back, which is the meaning of repentance, they're all going to perish in the consequences of Jonah's unraveling. And that is both the wrath of God and the love of God. The sailors recognize this. They recognize what's going on, and yet they try to do everything to spare Jonah. The surprising part of the story is that the sailors are a greater example than Jonah. Jonah says, you have to pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, because I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. And yet, they didn't do that. Instead, they had hurled all their cargo from the ship, trying to lighten the load, and then they had tried rowing fiercely to get to land just to get Jonah off the ship. And finally they say, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as you pleased. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Now that final sentence there of their sacrifices is quite startling. In part because they make it to the Lord and not any other God, but also because it fits the book of Leviticus prescription for a thank offering. 
the vows of thanksgiving. What happens when we've tried everything else and nothing works? That tax collector had to feel a little bit that way. What could he do to feel better after the sins that he was carrying? He hides off in the corner. He knows he's tried every other thing he can imagine, but there's just no way. He's too honest with himself, unlike the Pharisee. And the word that he uses when he prays to the Lord is he says, Lord, make atonement for me, for I'm a sinful man. Give an offering, a sacrifice, because I have no sacrifice I can give. That's the meaning of the word mercy in that verse. And so what does God do? He gives an offering. An offering that the sailors couldn't provide, an offering that Jonah couldn't provide, but that Jonah pictures. In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus speaks to the scribes and the Pharisees. They say, we would like a sign from you. And he says, an evil generation seeks a sign, but no sign will be given except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Why is Jesus greater than Jonah. Jesus became sin for us. He became Jonah's sins. He became your sins. He became my sins. He became a sin offering for us. And yet, John says that God so loved the world that he did this. The wrath of God is against the unraveling of sin and evil in our world. God's wrath is against all the stuff that's hurting you, that's punishing you, that's leading you to hell. God's wrath is against hell. God's wrath is against Satan. But God's wrath is not against you. God's wrath is not against people, it's against sin. And so God wants you to know that he is doing what he's doing in order to love and save and redeem you. And so he gives his only begotten son. God so loved the world. Not God so was so angry with the world that he killed his only son. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Jesus said, throw me in. And he was swallowed into the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. He did this to rescue sailors like us. Pagans against whom the wrath of God was coming. But the father and son did this together. To deal with the poison of sin. 
He is a greater Jonah because he did this willingly and obediently. And he did it to save the sailors and the Ninevites. And the point of all of that Old Testament language about atonement is that something must be done. The blood must be shed. The blood of the Old Testament sacrifices, God says, is the giving of a life. And all of those sacrifices could never truly save a person, but they were meant to picture the coming sacrifice. Throwing Jonah in the sea didn't really save these people from the eternal wrath, but giving Jesus did. Evil and sin sticks to us, and unless God does something, we could never live. But God so loved us. And baptism is just like Jonah's throwing in the sea. Baptism throws us into the water, a grave, a watery tomb. And by the blood of Jesus Christ, we are cleansed. cleansed. And like Jonah, three days later, we come up and we're alive again. Just like Jonah, three days later, Jesus came up and he was alive again. Which is why the book of Hebrews says that Jesus is the satisfaction, the sacrifice. It was fitting for him to be made flesh and blood, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver you who were afraid of death and subject to slavery. So he was made like you in every way. So he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make atonement for the sins of the people. Which is why we sang that hymn. I'll close with this verse from verse 3. Lord, I believe thy precious blood, which at the mercy seat of God pleads for the captives, liberty was also shed in love for me. Lord, I believe we're sinners more than sands upon the ocean shore. Thou hast cast all for all a ransom paid, for all a full atonement made. Amen.